We're starting things off with a word from our sponsor. Since 1998, DVD Netflix has delivered more than 5 billion DVD and Blu-ray rentals to movie lovers in every American zip code and to military bases around the world in their famous, iconic red envelopes. With an extensive library of titles from the early 1900s to today and shows from such premium networks as HBO and Showtime, DVD Netflix is a must for physical media lovers. Featuring a variety of different plans starting at as little as $8.99 per month, it's a great way to experience DVDs and Blu-rays with special features and commentary tracks you won't find anywhere else. A member for over 20 years, so well before I ever began working with the service as an official blogger on acting or as a DVD, Netflix, Twitter, film discussion host, I think it's a terrific way to keep our vintage video store memories alive and support the physical media that we love so much. So be sure to check out DVD Netflix for yourself at dvd.com. Now, on with the show. Hey, this is Jen Johans at filmintuition.com and filmintuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen. Well, I was so glad to have my good friend Walter Chaw with me today, a brilliant film critic and writer of the new book of Walter Hill film, which I highly recommend. I'm not all the way through it yet, but it's wonderful. It's Walter, his work for several years has finally paid off. It is out into the world and we're very, very excited. And he's being kind enough to even chat with us today when he's sick. So Walter, thanks for being here. Oh, I wouldn't miss it for the world. Thanks so much for uh, getting the book. I don't expect a lot of people to have finished it yet. It's uh, it's like a quarter of a million words about one director's career. It's a very specific and niche topic. But uh, yeah, you know, thanks for uh, mentioning it. Yes, of course. No, it's wonderful. And it's teaching me so much. It makes me want to go back and watch all of these movies again <laughs> and again. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But today we're here to talk about a few of our favorite films from last year. They were two of my favorite films, The Power of the Dog and Drive My Car. And I know you loved them as well and wrote is... so eloquently on them. Oh, well, it, at least at length, if not eloquently. Yeah. They think they were the one and two movies for me last year. Or, you too. You know, close to that. You know, it was like neck and neck for me. They're both. Mm-hmm. Uh, mind-blowing i think power of the dog definitely was the best movie that i saw at telluride last year um and then uh i don't remember when i saw driving my car but i was equally blown away by it for a lot of the same reasons it's kind of cool that you paired them together they're both uh sort of sterling examples of how to adapt a book or a short story uh into film and i think a lot of people make the mistake of doing or expecting it to be a one-on-one adaptation from one medium to the next medium. But, you know, if you, if you think of it, of, of turning like, you know, book into a ballet or something, no one would expect that. No. So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a, or, or, or a song, you know, like mm-hmm. um, Mercy Street, Peter Gabriel's Mercy Street is a adaptation of an Anne Sexton poem and clearly not one-on-one, it, it, one-two-one, it couldn't be. So, mm-hmm. you know, but, but that, that expectation in film, I think has always been unfair. It does, saddle adaptations with um you know unjust or unreachable expectations 
for adaptations and, and, and i think the best adaptations like like for under the skin are ones that um capture the feeling the spirit yeah. of something Evocative. Rather than the, yeah, yep. than, than having every single thing being replicated on screen or being acted out. And I think, you know, we're at a place now where, or we always have been, I don't think we're worse now than we ever have been, where people are very literal and they mm-hmm. want, like, just, just give me the things that I see as I see them and don't yeah. you know, give me subtext, don't give me whatever. And I think by you pairing these two movies together, it opens up a really interesting conversation or portal into movies that require a lot of work from their audience or at least an unusual amount of work given how you know we're usually spoon-fed things um yeah yeah, it's you know i don't know which which one you want to jump into first but uh they're, they're they're both spectacular they really are and they're ones that play one way the first time you watch them and then the second time all of a sudden, like you brought up something so brilliant. Maybe we'll dive into that film first, The Power of the Dog. When I talked to you before I had even seen the film, you were it was on our episode we did on gothic cinema. Mm. And you were bringing up the first few minutes of The Power of the Dog and how it sets everything up in the voiceover narration and then finding out, and spoiler alert, the thing about anthrax. Mm. And, you know, it really does set up everything that is going to happen later in that film and so the first time it completely washes over you you're lost in this world and then you see it again and you see what they were doing and it's it's just brilliant yeah so i guess maybe we will start with that one yeah well i love jane campion i think she's yeah. maybe the best um and you know we're so the list and hyperbole it's not necessary to say that i guess but she is a an astounding adapter of words she really understands how to bring like poetry especially particularly uh from one medium to to the next you know all the way in the back to an angel on my table which is oh yeah sort of you know janet Janet frame Frame. you know but like the the piano is is about communicating something that's incommunicable through music um and into you know whatever but uh uh i love in the cut her movie oh yes uh, yeah mm-hmm. yeah i love talking with you because you're one of the few people who've seen it and having yeah. seen it admit to loving it um yeah but, uh, Holy I don't smoke words too. In your mouth. what's that I like- oh, smoke. yeah yeah she is uh right star we talked about right star pod. Oh, yeah there's no five minutes i think we, i think we've said this before with you each other there's no five minutes of bright star that i can watch without crying and yes um but she understands poets and the lives of poets, the lives of writers and creators. Yeah. And she understands how to translate that. And so this is an adaptation of a book by Thomas Savage uh, that was published at the end of the 60s. And, you know, it was it was hailed universally uh, yeah. uh, at, at, at the time. But very few people, I think only one anonymous review in the 1960s, talked about the undercurrent of homosexuality that runs through the, the film. And, of course, the film is just actually just about that. It's about yes. homophobia and expectations of masculinity. You know, even the uh, brother is uh, chubby and slow is how he's described in the book. Yeah. And, you know, what are the expectations that we have of men and how does that warp them uh, in, in our culture? And so, you know, if you've read the book, uh, I don't know. Have you read the book? I the, actually haven't. It is okay. on my shelf. I still need to. Yes. <laughs> my, my to read book, my, my to read list is on my phone and I hope my phone crashes <laughs> soon. It just takes it. Cause I can't, <laughs> I'll never begin to crack it, but uh, I know it's ridiculous. But anyway, um, yeah, it's a, uh, it's, it's a beautiful adaptation. It's a beautiful book, but there are moments in the book that she brings forward in the film 
to you know better set the scene and set the character and there's other stuff like you know they both go to the same school and I don't, I don't remember what school it is it's a prestigious one you know they're wealthy and um the and Yale Yale is it Yale okay thanks yep. yeah and and the uh and, and Phil the uh character played by Benedict Cumberbatch is recruited by a fraternity and he's so cruel during the re- recruiting process he says horrible things about the greek system and about the intelligence you know he's but he's about to be accepted but then he's like i'm going to show these people i'm going to have this moment that's the character of phil he's so terrible that he also ruins the chances for his brother who really really wants to be part of a group who really wants to be accepted as part of the group Uh, george i think his name is and and it's like there's a lot of those moments in the book that don't come into the film, but I think the film captures it anyway. I think the film gives. Oh, that. the feeling of that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That, mm-hmm. you know, they're bound together. They're brothers. And it's at a time when, you know, family was a death sentence, I guess. And they're, they're, <laughs> there's this really interesting, you know, you immediately get the sense that George has missed out on a lot because he's had to deal with Phil and he's, he's had to work with Phil and control Phil to the, uh, uh, you know, the control Phil's rage to the extent that anyone could. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's all there is what I'm, I guess I'm trying to say um, yeah. without it having to be literally again, a one for one translation of it. Campion gets that. I'm not sure a lot of people would do that. Uh, and she also adds stuff to it. That's, you know, a little bit more explicit. The, uh, stash of pornography and the things like that are not the the shrine is, is not mm-hmm. in the book but uh but it works you know as, as i think visually when he sets the the little boy that he's grooming on top of the saddle horse you know that's a really yeah. visually powerful sequence mm-hmm. um anyway. yeah it, it is or the night where he hears his brother and kirsten dunn's character making love and then immediately where does he go but to that saddle and Bronco Henry and there's like this erotic ritual that he has with that saddle and so yep. you know the whole movie really is about um, performance of masculinity and what to expect and he's a larger than life person I mean, these are wide open spaces it was shot in New Zealand it doesn't resemble Montana at all it doesn't have to westerns are a dream basically but he doesn't even fit in this landscape he's trying to be so big all the time and watching it again I couldn't help but hear the lee marvin in his voice big time like that first scene uh where he meets um the young man and he humiliates him at the table uh it it's basically taken from man who shot liberty valance one of the first people to bring that up was our friend megan abbott who saw it i mean she also that's our favorite western megan and my is man who shot liberty valance And Jane Campion has admitted that, yes, that was kind of a model for her. And so watching that back, you can kind of see that. But you can also hear Lily Marvin in um, Bennett and Cumberbatch. But it doesn't sound like parody at all. Just somebody trying on this sort of role of what his voice should be like or what he's not comfortable in his own skin. He has no idea how to be natural. And so he opts for cruelty. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and I've I've heard, you know, and I think initially I was a little bit in this camp about some criticisms about Cumberbatch's performance and how mannered it is and how strange and how he's he always kind of wrestles with the accent, yeah, you know, a little bit I think. And I've come around completely to that to 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 this point of view that you're articulating, 
where the whole movie is about performance. It's, the yep. whole movie is about him pretending to be something that he's not. And we we only see him in his natural state one or two times in the course of the film, and those are like wordless sequences. He's yeah. not really you know asked to to to, to do that. But whenever he's talking, he's performing. Um, mm-hmm. He's he's like pretending to be something that he's not, and he's like you know his voice goes down and he speaks in a really rigid sort of way. And you know when I first saw it, it did take me aback. I was like, oh. That's weird. Maybe it works anyway, though. I love it so much. I'm not going to worry about that too much. But now I think it really works as part of this um, uncanny almost feeling throughout the course of the film that you're also describing by them shooting it in New Zealand, that there's something uncanny about this, something strange about it. And, you know, I think it's interesting that that people like uh, Sam Elliott responded so negatively to it. You know, if you remember, he he, he briefly was Twitter's villain for a while when he he came out and said, "Uh, those aren't cowboys. She's, you know, and then Gene Campion and her wisdom said, you're just an actor. You're not a cowboy either. You're from like Pasadena. So there's um, something that's immediately revealing. I was going to say repugnant, but that's not exactly right. It's it's like the uh, uncanny valley is not completely... Uh, uh, traversed in the course of this movie in many ways, and I think that works to its its benefit. And you know, the whole myth of the old west and all the images that we have about what the west looked like and, and the people that were in it is also an illusion. You know, it's a self. It's because of John Ford. It's because of these uh, artists that have brought forward this this image of it. And so, if this is emulating Lee Marvin's performance, that kind of completely makes sense. Yeah. This is the only way that we understand. Uh, the Western, and that, then it's telling this really kind of transgressive um, story about that, you know, about Peter, uh, the the uh, boy who is actually, again, weird. You know, he's mm-hmm. like off. There's something off about him from yes. the very beginning. And, you know, you want to love him and you want to, like, he, he's obviously being abused and everything. And then at some point, I think the point when he's riding up into the canyon by himself, um, you know, with it's wordless, it doesn't set it up, and you're kind of lost in the rapture of it. You're kind of just watching yeah. it, and later you think back to it, and you, you think, "Oh, that's the moment when Campion is showing us that he's completely wrong in the head. There's something completely off, yep. you know." Or, or when he like kills the the pet rabbit, <laughs> you know, so yes. that he could di- he could dissect it. There are moments that she's telling us she plays fair completely all the way through that he's not nearly as uh, delicate as you think that he is. You know, he yes. Is, uh, yeah, the effeminate yeah. young man is the one who's yep. able to rise up to take on the stereotypical like big swinging dick of the old west. Essentially, yep. I'm glad you brought up Sam Elliott because um, <laughs> when that happened, I did like a Twitter post about how the western has always kind of been subversive, and that's why it's so cool. I wrote a whole paper in college about like masculinity and what was going on in those movies, the McCarthyist westerns. Of the 50s but i mean it goes back to like red river and all of these things where there's yeah, a lot yeah. of homoerotic stuff going on yeah the there. john ireland montgomery cliff scene about there's nothing better than a but, switch watch and a pistol <laughs> yes and they're like fondling oh, each yeah, other's exactly, guns yeah yeah, yeah or, or, or what was it a pistol and a good woman you ever held a pistol or something like that they, they're yes, like they're ignoring like the woman of, part of it exactly yeah. they're like sort of testing each other out and so it's like you know the that's like cruising they're asking each other yeah, they're gay, you know, and uh, they have yeah, each other it's all coded. Yeah, yeah, it's the best. 
Yeah, but I was um, really honored to host, uh, along with Ingu King, this episode for Slate this year, the Waves podcast on Westerns and how much I love um, all the stuff that goes on in the genre. And we took a look at The Power of the Dog, so I'll be sure to link to that when this thing posts as well. But um, yeah, I think it's a really great film. I I just love that the all of the characters are so strange. None of them seem to fit their time period, their surroundings. It's just a group of misfits, which is kind of a Jane Campion thing. Her characters never really want to conform to what society expects, nor should they. And they're always kind of butting against the edge of what's acceptable. Yeah. yeah and, you know, I've, I've become more sensitive to this issue as I've gotten older, too. But, you know, it seems like her movies often describe a kind of neurodivergence um, where, you know, just as you say, just as you articulate uh, beautifully, is like these people are out of place. Always. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. they're, they're not quite seeing the things that, that everyone else sees. They're not certainly not interpreting them the same way. And they're not communicating in the same way. They're, they're not right in the traditional mm-hmm. sense of right all of our characters are not rebellious necessarily they just don't fit and yeah and and and, and, and you know for all of these characters not to fit into a western is fascinating and you know we've not even talked about kirsten dunst really there's so many no. wonderful performances in this movie she is extraordinary in this yes film, you know um and, and i've always loved her you know but me too she's so underrated yeah. so underrated and you know i've always been like i love her voice her voice sounds like yeah. A read or something mm-hmm. there's like there's some kind of awesome there's a musicality going on yeah yeah, it. yeah it's awesome i love her voice i always have and you know to, to see her fully kind of mature into this role where she's asked to do so many things and express so many like subtle emotions there's not one like big moment i don't think the big scene the the, the other character gets it phil gets one but uh she's like very reserved over the course of the thing and she she expresses multitudes i mean she's so yes yeah yeah Yeah, just even in her reactions or how she um responds to the sound of the whistling i mean the menacing whistling my goodness and how he's able to immediately hear what she's working on on the piano and go up to his banjo and play it right away and you're like wow well she's like sitting there and she's terrified and she stops and you can hear it she can she shows her hearing it too yes the worst kind of torture is it's, it's, it's like a Gothic, like we talked about, right? Yeah. It's like a, you know, this old haunted Drive house playing insane. a tune and you hear it ghostly kind of floating down the stairs or something really um, creepy and terrible about that kind of uh, fear, you know, that, that she's expressing. So yes, yeah. a Gothic Western. That's exactly Indeed. what it is. That is what it is. Yes. Well, we should <laughs> probably move on to drive my car, which a uh, really, really brilliant film. Adore it. Do you remember when you first saw it? Gosh, I'm trying to remember because I've seen it now, I think, three or four times. I don't remember where I first saw it. Um, but, it, you know, it was during that season and I saw it maybe I, – I saw it in the theater. and I don't remember how I could have seen it in the theater. But mm-hmm. then I saw it a couple more times after that. It, it, was it a Telluride? I don't know because I felt like Power of the Dog. Anyway, that's the least interesting thing we could say about uh, Drive My Car. But, um, yeah, it just blew it away. And, you know, this is after another Mirakami was really beautifully adapted the year before. Yeah, Lee Chang Dong's film. And um Mirakami is an author that I've loved for a long time. You know, oh, he's fascinating. Oh my god. You know, not not the least for which because of his vinyl collection, but uh he but he uh 
you know, he he's so well read and well versed in Western philosophy and Western authors that mm-hmm. you're always pulling out these things from his 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 stories and his books. And he he's a jazz fanatic. He's had like a he has his custom built office that houses tens of thousands of jazz records. Oh, and he wow. listens to jazz while he play while he writes. And jazz becomes a major character in all of his movies, you know, mm-hmm. like particularly a burning jazz is literally oh, a yeah. the movie. But um, but you can feel that and as he's writing, he'll talk about, you know, Oscar Peterson and he'll talk about Hank Mobley. He'll talk about the 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 uh talk about jazz. And I think when I read him, it kind of feels like a riff or improvisation. Like I think my 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 favorite book of his is called Kafka on the Beach, and it's a uh, two-hander where the story kind of flips back and forth between these two very distinct characters and it sounds very much like a duet in my head when i'm reading it so he's a fascinating as you know i remember loving that but it's been so long since i read it i should (laughs) reread it yes well and again it just kind of washes over you too it's such a beautifully written well translated i can't read japanese i don't know what it's like but in translation it's really gorgeous really gorgeous stuff Yeah. And what's so great is we were talking about adaptation. And so for this, you're dealing with a short story from his collection, Men Without Women. This is from the story Drive My Car, but it's very different. Just sections of it and ideas find their way into this. But also Uncle Vanya by Chekhov, which came out in 1898. And so it's kind of this like marriage of these things that... um, you know, inspired Murakami, but really inspired Hamaguchi when he was making this and just so brilliantly written. And one of two films that he made that year, Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy, is also very good. Oh, yes. my God. I think both of them made my top five yes. list, you know, for what it's worth. You know, I love the other one, too. Wheel of Fortune and Fantasies were amazing, amazing, yep. amazing. And a lot of the same ways, I think, you know, a lot of mm-hmm. um, dealing with loss, dealing with the past yeah. and with memory and maybe human connection, repro- trauma. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Trauma and reprogramming your current perceptual um, uh, engagement to address the things that have happened to you in the past, which happens in Drive My Car, where this really kind of celebrated theater director um, restages Uncle Vanya, which he's been celebrated for playing on stage with a very young uh, actor who feels like he's not ready for the performance, you know, ready mm-hmm. to play that role because maybe he wants to punish him as a stand-in for the man that he saw sleeping with his wife before his wife suddenly died. You know, it's hard to, it's not, it's not like explicit. None of it is. None of it is. It's such a quiet, understated film. Well, that he's the one. To, yeah. Yeah. yeah, is yeah. he literally the, the the guy who was sleeping? He is in the short story. I don't remember. I his. believe he was. Yeah. Maybe? Okay. Um, yeah. Because yeah. they have that huge so, conversation about. Right. Okay. Yeah. 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 Thanks. Yeah. And, and yeah. so he's see even in my memory now I'm conflating oh, no. the story yeah. with the, the 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 movie. Um, but yeah, another example of of beautiful adaptation. You know, and I don't think that in the story he was a theater director. I think he was an actor. But but I mean, all of this suddenly now makes sense. It's all one piece now, right? When you're talking mm-hmm. about, you know, the absolute power that the director has, and yet he doesn't have the power to bring back his wife. He doesn't have the power to um, re- redress his ills, or even to address the flaw in his character that prevented him from confronting his wife. You know, which he could have at the moment. Or is that even a flaw? I guess there are no. I think ultimate answers about human behavior in either of these movies. I think I, both of these movies are about the mystery 
of human behavior. And, and, and I think I prefer that, you know, I don't want to have these really clearly defined arcs where a person starts off bad and then sees the light yeah. or whatever. And, you know, that's fine. And some of my favorite movies, I guess are that, but um, it's so nice to have movies that are just really ambiguous all the way through. I mean, is, would you say that Kafuku is a traditional male lead in a film? No, not at all. Yeah, no. and and the ways that he's different becomes the challenge and the and the delight of watching the the film. Like you you expect anger, and he he gives you passivity. You expect passivity, and he gives you anger. You expect. He's different. You expect them to end up together. He and his driver. No. Uh, yeah, I love that game. choice. Yeah, that, no, because she's sort of a, a surrogate daughter, essentially, totally. because they had lost a daughter. We learn. Um, I also think it's interesting when you think of Uncle Vanya and the young wife to um, the professor character in that play, because you are dealing yeah. with an actor who um, is was a very accomplished actor, very good looking man who's now yep. directing as well. And then he's like being pushed out or replaced by these younger kind of vacuous, um, beautiful young actor types with his w- wife, who's a writer. There's questions of storytelling in both this and Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy. I dig that um, we hear the wife's voice on cassette you know reading the lines and then he's practicing the lines in the car so it's like he's haunted by this woman and her voice and just the lines from uncle vanya and what they mean um start kind of giving you colors to the story that you weren't expecting and in wheel of fortune and fantasy you're dealing with someone telling themselves a certain version of events you're also dealing i think it was the second story the very erotic one um with a professor and a student and it gets super sexual and uncomfortable but it it has to do with um performing or reading something very explicit out loud and how that kind of turns you on and what is appropriate and what is not and so there's all these questions about storytelling communication through um both of these films and i think makes it really interesting to watch and discuss yeah well e- even to the extent of casting a deaf actress you know um, i love to, that uh, yes yeah so when you talk about modes of communication here's another one how yes. is she communicating that especially the character like sonia from uncle Anya, who gets the ending soliloquy, gets the, sort of the, the Chantelle, the cherry on top at the yes. end of the play. She gets the monologue. I mean, she's like the mm-hmm. last surviving person of rank in a Shakespeare film, right? She yes. um, she she gets to do the, but she she signs it. And it's yes. um, extraordinarily powerful, I think, because it causes you to engage it in a different way. It causes you to like, we're, we're, we're used to hearing beautiful monologues, uh, especially yes. at Chekhov, but we're not used to having to engage in a different way. And this, again, is a challenge. It's an adaptation of an adaptation of an adaptation. There's all these things. And, you know, what does, um, you, you know, Hamaguchi add to that feedback loop? What, what does he yeah. change and develop in the course of how we tell stories? The film, of course, is just this other way that we tell stories. I think maybe the essential way that we tell stories to each other. And so um, how he does it is gorgeous and brilliant and 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 i i feel lost in it when i whenever I, I watch it again to your point about never seeing the same movie twice with with great art that's certainly true of 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 this film even more so than power of the dog i think um 
which does that, but this does it for me in even a more uh, significant way. I feel every life change that I'll have for the rest of my life, when I come back to this movie, this will it'll speak to it, whatever yeah. it is. And I think that's a remarkable gift that I think artists can give us sometimes is that there's a, this is a companion they have for your, your whole life. You know, one of the mm-hmm. great, great things I heard about marriage when I was getting married was that you're not marrying one person. You're marrying the hundred different people that they're going to be throughout the course of their lifetime. And, oh. and art can be that too. Yeah. That, that, you know, the art is an extant object. And of course you're the one that changes, but the great art has these depths in it and mm-hmm. these echoes of things to come uh, that you, you know, it's like when I watch Crossroads, Hills Crossroads, when I was a kid, it's one thing. It's a karate kid knockoff. I didn't really get it. When I watched it after my dad had died and I watched it after, everything is different about that movie now. It's yeah. really touching and heart-breaking film. And so, yeah, you know, Drive My Car is certainly that. And, you know, I, I, I just think that when we talk about, and we talked about a lot recently with the Sight and Sound poll, about this idea of slow movies, about the idea of, like, really having to work for the for the stuff that you get. Um, we, we've never liked that, you know, as, as a species, mm-hmm. you know, we weren't selling out the Coliseum because of Sophocles, we were selling it out because of gladiatorial contests and stuff. So the, there's always been this instant, fast gratification that we've, we, 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 and we get it through, you know, 99.9% of every movie that comes out. But when you get something like Power of the Dog and even more so Drive My Car or Jean, Jean John Dillman, you know, you, you really get this opportunity to go inside yourself. They're, they're, they're mirrors yeah. and they're meditation pools, if you will. They're opportunities for you to become contemplative about the degree to which you are play acting in your own life and yep. the different characters that you inhabit during the course of your day, even, and how you present yourself to the people that love you and that you love back. And what does that even mean? And how does, you know, all these huge, unanswerable questions that you get to spend time in the company of artists and then you yes. spend time with friends to talk about it like we are yeah. there's something really beautiful and precious about movies like that you know yeah, um, yeah i guess that's what i would say about absolutely <laughs> so the storytelling we see about movies that deal with storytelling transcends and here we are telling stories to each other and that's wonderful it's yeah. amazing it's a feedback loop that's um substantive and nourishing i guess to the soul i mean i don't know about your days but most of my days are running around like stressed out and panicked and trying to get things done and everything <laughs> if this is my job is like i have to sit down and watch two and a half hours of mm-hmm. uncle vanya and you're driving a car and you know the, yes. listening to these stories it's just how, how can i ever complain about anything really yeah hundred percent. It gives you an outlet and a way to process everything. Absolutely. Sure. Yeah. Yes. Walter, thank you so much for doing this. I appreciate it. Uh, you, you know, whenever you pick up the phone, I'll answer. So thanks for having me and thank you of me for these movies. Of course. And with me now, I have a good friend who I've tackled everything from crime movie remakes to extreme sports movies, Terriers, and Mr. In-Between with. Jed Ayers, who's an author and also a blogger at Hardboiled Wonderland. Thanks for joining me again, Jed. How are you? I'm doing good, Jen. Thanks for continuing to uh, give me reasons to watch 
movies. All right. <laughs> I'm yeah. really not writing about them or uh, anything like that. But yeah, uh, we all need the excuse. Exactly. Though, do we need an excuse? I mean, they're movies. We just love them. I just, I appreciate you giving me a little direction to go charging oh. off down. So, Of course, anytime. Well, today we're going to talk about uh, Patrice Leconte's film. Now, I've always called it Monsieur Hire, but listening to some of the characters speak in the film, it almost sounded like Monsieur Here. So I might say it either way, if I'm messing it up, listeners, I do apologize. But that is the film we are here for today from 1989. It's a great movie. It's a remake. Well, it's actually more based on the book by Georges Simenon, which is, I'm probably butchering this, Les Francais de Monsieur Hire, or Here Again. And it was made into Panique or Panic by Julien Duvivier in 1947, starring Michelle Simone. So, Jed, talk to me about these movies. Had you seen the original first and then the remake, vice versa? Um, I believe, actually, I, I think you probably put me on to uh, Monsieur Hire um, yeah. sometime in early this year or, or, or last year at some point. Um, but I watched, I watched panic first, um, back in April and I was just checking my letterbox and looks like I watched panic. And then two days later I watched Monsieur hire, uh, for the first time. So, uh, I watched them back to back and I, I, I really enjoyed both of them. Um, so I think, just the 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 amazing black and white photography in in panic is it's a, it's a little bit of an edge for me uh, as far as is which one i prefer but i i really enjoy uh enjoyed monster hire i enjoyed going back to to catch up on it again and and yeah there was it was funny as as well as i remembered the overall story uh, there were so many details in it that uh, totally forgotten and totally kind of, you know, ticklish and, and baffling and, and uh, fun to look at. And I have not read the novel. Um, I haven't either. No. A couple of Simenons, but, uh, um, you know, what, 300 books or something. I've, I've not even scratched the surface of his <laughs> stuff. <laughs> of his oeuvre. He, he wrote like hundreds. Wow. That's yeah. incredible. Yeah. Many, many, many. And there have been, I don't know, probably a hundred films based on his uh, stories. So, uh, wow. no, not even scratch the surface of, of the films either. Okay. That's another thing. I guess I'm pointing you that direction. Oh, <laughs> that's a big assignment. Yeah. I'm not yeah. even sure how many are available. Yeah. You have until uh, in January, English. you know, just a couple weeks. You can knock it out of the I park. I can knock out 25 probably. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Well, I think you're right, because last year, it would have been November 2021 for people listening to this. I did write about five French language neo-noirs for your noir vember. That was it. That collection. was the one. Yeah, yes. that, that's what sent me looking for it. So yeah, thanks for that great piece. It was good. Oh. Of course. Yeah. I always love writing uh, for your blog. You kind of give me good direction as well, because otherwise it's hard to figure out what you want to write about. I think I had tackled that film before 
for uh, Brian Sauer's website. He did uh-huh. a whole thing on 1989 movies. I think this was in uh, 2019, so it was the anniversary. And so I think I chose this as an underrated or under-discussed movie that had come out that year, along with other ones um, that I love that were also released, like Dead Calm and stuff like that. Mm. Um, I love the eroticism of Lacan's work. This is really cool to see the couple in this film and then go and watch Intimate Strangers, which has the same actors in the lead roles of uh, Michelle Blanc and Sandrine Bonaire. And in that one, it's a woman who shows up at a tax attorney's office and starts just telling him her most personal intimate details because she thinks he's a therapist she went into (laughs) the wrong apartment where people are working out out of their apartment and he just kind of lets her be and speak because you know it's sandrine bonaire and so this weird kind of codependent thing uh develops between them so those two films would be a good back-to-back, just kind of like Panic and Must Your Hire, for sure. Yeah, no, uh, Lacan, uh, the only other film of his I'd seen was The Man on a Train. with um, Another great uh, film. Uh, yeah, and I haven't seen that one. I actually caught that one theatrically, just went in blind um, and enjoyed it, but I, I don't remember it that well. So I, I haven't, was... 20 years ago, 25 years ago that it came out. So, uh, yeah, clearly ought to, and, uh, ceremony is, has been on my list to, to see for a long time. So I probably ought to yeah. just get off my ass and watch some movies. One of my favorites besides, I mean, you got to check out intimate strangers, but another one that he did that I love is called girl on the bridge. That one's a little trickier to find. Yeah. Um, is that Juliette Binoche? Is she in that? Uh, that is, a different one. I think that might be two lovers on the bridge. Oh yeah. Like that. Yeah. Yeah. There were, they were released around the same time, I believe. And they're both French and they both, yeah. Star, uh, you know, dark haired waif on the bridge. Um, but yeah, girl on the bridge was with, uh, Daniel, is it O'Twee, O'Toole, um, or O'Twa. I don't know exactly how you say his name and Vanessa Paradis. What? Higher. Yeah, <laughs> higher, exactly. And Vanessa Paradis, and it's such a good movie. Yeah, so it's black and white. It's gorgeous. I think you'll love that one as well. Yeah, it's got some magical realism happening in it, and it's really cool. Yeah. Well, when I first started uh, Monsieur Hire back in uh, April, and I had the same thing happen watching it uh, this week, was uh, I thought, damn, I'd love to see a Brian De Palma version uh, of this story with all the, the voyeurism going on. Um, It's such a, I don't know how much, how, how spoilery you want to get here, but there's, uh, there's, there's. Oh, you can go for it. Okay. All right. Well, with Jennifer, Jen's permission, I will. Yes. I will. uh, Everybody blame me, not Jed. Yeah. (laughs) But, but the, uh, all the, the, all the ways we're set up to to think he's he's such a creep, and he is undoubtedly yeah. creepy, though his mm-hmm. guilt is somewhat um, less sure. Um, but the the voyeurism um, 
yeah, just made me want to watch uh, Brian De Palma movies and, and see a, a De Palma version of this. Um, uh, yeah, I think that's all I had to say right there. Yeah, no, I think that would be really awesome to see. And you could kind of imagine De Palma watching this and getting some ideas and thinking about it as well. Yeah, because there is kind of this rear window-y, voyeuristic thing happening and so you can see him just being the perfect guy to address that a little bit yeah it's um just such a good unsettling uneasy film it's short too very short i really appreciate that yeah like 80 minutes long so uh that there's a recommendation and michael nyman's score uh is a character in the film i mean it's 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 really nice um i it's a name that sounded familiar and i looked up and i was like oh yeah he done like i've got a couple of his soundtracks that i listened to uh on yes. cd the claim the michael winterbottom film the claim i love that score and especially uh antonio bird's ravenous uh, has got a fantastic score that he did with um damon alburn from uh, the band blur uh i, I love that. <laughs> I love that movie and I love that score. Uh, it's one of my favorites to write to, but yeah. Um, great. Yeah. Michael Nyman did the score for the piano. And another one yeah. of my favorites that he did was the end of the affair. I actually talked oh, about yeah. Michael Nyman's score with Bilga Ibiri and how much we were just like immediately, you just hear a couple bars and it's, you know, you're swept away and caught yeah, it's up a in beautiful the romance. Movie. Yeah, it is. Every element is beautiful. Michael Nyman is is so good at what he does. Yes. Well, I, I'm curious to you as a woman, how yeah. how how hard did the the creepy vibe of the guy hit you? Because as a guy who, like, as a young teenager, probably 13 years old, maybe even 12. I walked out of my house one day very innocently and looked up at my 16-year-old neighbor's Mm. bedroom window and she was in a state of undress that I, it ruined my life. I (laughs) walked out of a door again, the same way. I was always looking, always waiting. (laughs) And it like, you know, it, it, it the took several years yeah. for me to go, you know, maybe this is creepy. Maybe I should not uh, live my life this way. But uh, but I, I could uh, I mean, the, the girl in the in the in the film, uh, Sandrine, uh, she's not closing her blinds at all. She's no, which always bothers me in movies. I talked about it with our friend Walter Cha, his wife and his daughter both Uh have like an actual aversion to that in movies like they didn't think they'd be able to handle scream because the beginning of the film nobody has blinds or drapes over the windows yeah and it's a little too much um i think you know it is creepy i'm somebody i'm sure most women have who've been followed and um, had creepy encounters in my life of course but um I luckily haven't been in a situation where, you know, I look up and somebody's. I think the scariest uh, thing that happened, but thank goodness, as far as like a possible voyeur, 
thank goodness I didn't actually know about it or was aware as in the middle of the night once um, I went into the kitchen to get a glass of water here in Phoenix and our front door was hanging open. Mm-hmm. And um, so that scared the shit out of me, of course. Yeah. And I went around the house, made sure like everything was okay. And, you know, I mean, I shut the door and um, and then we heard that we had a voyeur in our neighborhood who would just work his way inside houses and expose himself oh, to people like while they were sleeping. And so I was you know, that will fuck you up for a little bit. But uh, sure. thank goodness I didn't wake up to see that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's just going to ruin your day. Yeah. Does it. Uh, so the so the, the character. Watch it. Yeah. Yeah. The character for in the sure. movie is- but yeah. she's toying with them. You can tell she kind of gets off on being watched. I yeah. mean, everyone has their kinks, I guess. And obviously that is her character um she's i think weirdly flattered and also you know legitimately turned on by him but her devotion is still to the the man she's with unfortunately or i mean who knows what this guy would be like if he ever chills would he be a good lover for her who the hell knows maybe in in a month he'll see some new woman that he can't stop staring at we don't know Yes. So, yeah, talk to me a little bit about the uh, the higher character. Yeah. I mean, there's so many very specific, it's such a brief film, but there are so many little picadillos and, and things like that, that that are on display that feel like there's a lot there that, um, like each know more. says something about about him and i'm not sure that i am equipped to unpack it all uh yeah but and I, not having read the book maybe there's there's more that goes into it but that i mean he's a he's kind of a misanthrope yeah he, he doesn't like people he says it plainly and 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 the detective who's investigating the murder uh that's his opening question is why don't people like you? You know, <laughs> everybody yeah, says it, it's nobody so likes weird. And, um, and he has all these different sides too, mm-hmm. and that you can't really, you want to know where did this personality emerge? Like, was he always like this? What happened to him in his youth? Like you want to know more. Um, but then there are these moments like where he goes bowling and he's delighting what people the fuck with the bowling. <laughs> yeah. The fuck with that? He's, <laughs> he's a, yeah, he's a showman. Like I thought, oh, this is a side gig that he has. He's a he's a tailor. He's got his yeah, business. Yeah. And what this must that? be. He's also an entertainer, like a, a show off showman bowler. But but there's no indication that this is anything other than a hobby. No. He's really good at it. I it's mean, he's a really very, weird moment. Yeah, he, he apparently only does things he's really good at, or or he does the things that he he doesn't have many things that he enjoys, so he does them enough that he gets really good at them. I'm not sure what it is. Um, but yeah, yeah, he might be scene. on the spectrum or something. Yeah, there's a scene with him him bowling, and he's the only <laughs> time in the film I think he takes off his his coat, yes. his jacket, but he's still got his his sleeves are are like. <laughs> They look like they're cutting off the circulation to his hands. They're so they tight. Are. Yeah. And his tie never loosens. Um, 
though there are the couple scenes in the bathhouse uh, yes. where he's mm-hmm. not dressed. And there's the yeah. scene where he's getting a tattoo. He looks like a cherub. He looks like a little baby <laughs> getting a tattoo. And we never see what the tattoo is. And we never see any other tattoos on him. It's a very kind of disturbing scene when I it think is. It. We don't know what he's doing. Is he getting her name? Looks like a middle-aged baby getting a tattoo, and then he's he's swilling a like a cocktail out of a (laughs) martini glass. It's (laughs) it's it seems so perverse. Weird. Yeah. Yeah. Any idea what the tattoo is? You know, I'm thinking it has to have something to do with her. But watch, it could be those rats he carries around or his mice. Yeah. What? Yeah. He's. He's the like mice. the Pied Piper, yeah. Yeah. We... Okay. Watching you I'm get a, more and more discombobulated like, the, is so fun. Yeah. What the fuck with the mice? The mice. Uh, he uh, <laughs> he he doesn't kill the mouse, but there's a he's gonna he's got a cage full of mice, and he reaches in, and he pulls one out by the tail, and it's already dead. And he buries the mouse. He wraps it very gently. In, in some scraps of cloth from his tailoring business and he mm-hmm. goes out to the river and he kind of ceremoniously tosses the uh, uh, gives him a, a, a burial at sea um, the hell yeah. with that and then later in the film as he's getting ready to leave his life in this town he sets the mice free by looks like he's going to hold up the train or something he's going to try and uh, he, he he goes to the train tracks and he like dumps. It dumps does seem food. a little bit like one of those old movies where, you know, he has to do something and stop the train um, or he, he's waiting for someone. The railroad track. Yeah. He's like and waiting for a damsel to be tied to the tracks or something. Yeah. I was like, is he trying to kill the mice or stop the train? Or <laughs> I don't understand. I don't understand. That. It's fascinating, but I don't understand it. Yeah. So you really don't get me him. Much. Not helping me much. But the most disturbing detail about him is not the voyeurism and it's not the mice or the bowling or the the skating. (laughs) What really sets me on edge is watching him eat a hard boiled egg with a spoon. Yeah. That that's not right. It is it seems very, very wrong and I don't know. I got very a lot of angel heart vibes from it. Uh, <laughs> it's not not okay to be seated, seated, seated. Sorry, uh, wearing a, a suit, eating a hard boiled egg with a spoon. Yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm it, it's disturbing. Yeah. What we're saying but, is he is a weird dude, and we can't fully discern why or where but he's a fascinating character and i think uh, the performance by michelle blanc is is brilliant yeah the many layers you wonder if other scenes were left on the cutting room floor you know what other hobbies does this guy have that are not explained at all yeah i had to look him up how old he was because at some points he looks very old yeah. And at other times he looks like I said like a little baby. Mm-hmm. Uh, his skin is very smooth and very pale. And I wondered if he had shaved his head, like if he was actually bald or if he'd shaved his head for the role cuz the the hair around the back is maybe too long mm-hmm. but very 
very neatly cut. Like he wears it that way just to piss me off. Um, <laughs> and yeah, so it, it's, everything about the character is extremely mannered and, and very well presented uh, to be, to be uh, irritating and uh, to me. Yeah, they did it personally. They were like, you know, at some point, this dude is going to stop trying to check out his neighbor's window and watch this movie. And we want to totally fuck him up. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) 1989 is actually exactly the, that would have been 13 in 1989. So wow, that's probably exactly when this came out. Yeah. Yep. They knew. Yep. Over in France. They just had a vibe. Yes. Voyeuristic waves um or vibes i should say voyeuristic <laughs> vibes um is there anything else you want to add about this movie besides that people should check it yeah, out just it's a really good character piece absolutely no help in uh in no, answering no. my questions about this so i am worthless Th- thanks today, for Jed. thanks, thanks for, for just yeah setting me on on itch and 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 making <laughs> me think about this this is going to bother you the entire holiday break You'd be like, what the fuck was with the bowling and the mice? And the skating. And the skating. Why is he he, like... Why is he there? Why is he there? Is he following her? Or is this another hobby? He's following her? I believe he is. Yeah. He's not a good skater. No. No, that's one thing he's not good at. Mm -hmm. Very good at the bowling. Yep. But I kind of had the impression that she was there because he was. Okay. I could be wrong. Like, like was yeah. her presence throwing him, throwing his skating game off? If she'd shown up at the bowling, is he alley, Wayne Gretzky? Normally, we don't know. Yeah, well, and the, the the he falls and he gets a bloody nose on the ice, yeah. and his rag is extremely bloody. Yeah, when she looks over at him, and his nose is is it's an amazing nose. Uh, it is. It. It looks like a nose that would that would bleed profusely. Uh, <laughs> oh my gosh, Jed, this was just a whole lot of fun. You make me laugh so hard, my friend. Thank you for oh. talking about what's your hire. Yeah. Yeah. Anytime. Right. Anytime I think of another anytime. movie to annoy you, I'll let you know. Yeah, annoy is appropriate, but not 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 in a bad way. Yeah, it's it's a movie that I'm gonna think about. And mm-hmm. a character I'm going to think about uh, quite a bit. Um, and, As a writer. Yeah, I'm, I'm more annoyed that you didn't have answers for me on everything. Okay. I know. That's a, yeah. That's, I know. I get an F on this assignment, basically. I just feel personally attacked that you, <laughs> you'd ask me to do this and then not have the answers. So Yes. I'm already in vacation mode. What do you want? Yeah. Or sabbatical mode. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And I'm here with my very good friend, the author of She Rides Shotgun, the upcoming Everybody Knows, also The Last King of California, and a screenwriter and a producer on that shows as Gotham and The Mentalist, and also did the really excellent pilot for the LA Confidential show that I wish CBS had picked up. They didn't their loss. I'm here with Jordan Harper. Jordan, thank you so much for being here. How are you doing? 
I'm doing well. Uh, thanks for having me. Always, as always, a pleasure. I I don't know if anybody's passed me in the in the episode count yet, um, but if they have, then we need to book more episodes because I'm yeah determined to maintain my position as the most frequent guest. You were the first pod. guest. You know, I, I am a... not up on my tally. I should probably get there and start logging it. And um, if not, yeah, we'll book you back a couple more times. Yeah, I feel like it's it's been a little it's been a little while, and so I gotta I gotta get those numbers back up, you know. Yeah. Uh, but no, I'm good. You know, as we were saying off air, it's uh, uh, getting ready to launch a book, and it's it's both very fun and, and a little fraught because um, so much of it is out of my hands at this point, and uh, I can't go around and and uh, police people into uh buying my book you know i can't browbeat or yeah you know my my mother's book i don't club think is, you're gonna have to oh well thank you but you know you know my mother's making her book club buy the book so you know that's nice. that's six sale, sales right there so i got that locked in but other than that you know there's just not that much you can do um and uh so you know i'm looking forward to, to it coming out and i'm trying to write the next one and i just uh I was just in Koreatown with our friend Rob Belushi, where we had lunch and we were filming a little promo footage and um, had a great moment where I was I was on camera and I was talking about Koreatown and food and uh, behind Rob out of unfortunately out of camera view, uh, Anya Taylor Joy got out of a very fancy SUV and walked into a Korean mall where there are a lot of uh, spas and and things like that. So we had a nice celebrity sighting, which is always a very Los Angeles uh, moment and uh and so uh you know uh, i continue as always yeah so you didn't get it on camera she didn't make like a cameo appearance anything no. like that no you didn't get to be one no. of those you know touristy things like huh you know wave them flag them <laughs> down and i love the queen's gambit you didn't get to do that yeah no it was unfortunate that the camera was pointed the other way so um so you can't see you're her, too cool but, to do that though come on am yeah. i for anna on a taylor joy i gotta say that one is still like she's a list she's hot yeah you know it's just like, uh, like, <laughs> you're uh, like i'll run after her sure well, you know well and, and you know like and everybody knows um there's a lot of celebrity sightings in that book and they're all with one exception uh celebrity sightings that i've actually had in the place that i had them and i think you know it gives some verisimilitude but i was just really happy because that's one i wouldn't have expected is on a taylor joy in in koreatown on sixth street um so i'm glad for my next book now i know that i get to uh, include that. that in and, yeah uh, that was good and 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 Rob and I had some uh katsu curry which uh is something that uh the character Chris and everybody knows eats a lot um yes. and I I took Rob to the place where Chris would get the takeout uh katsu curry uh, cuz along for his with lonely the, takeout nights yes for his lonely takeout nights and uh much like the celebrity sightings in the book are all real all the food places are real uh, even if I don't name them uh they're all based on real places so uh you know, uh, we were trying to kind of put together a little food map of my my very favorite corner in Los Angeles, and uh, which I maintained this block or two of Sixth Street is the best food block in America. And if uh, anybody disagrees with me, I want them to take me to the block that they think is better, and I will happily um, engage in that competition with somebody. Okay, that sounds great. Is that around the place where you used to um, kind of hole up and finish your books? Like yeah, the, the, the Line Hotel is on Wilshire, uh, which is one block 
um, south of Sixth Street. So it's it's a yes, it's right around the corner from there, and that's where I really started to kind of dive into more of the restaurants around there. But there's just a you know, and I, I, Hamji Park is is on that block, which is if you've seen the movie Black Hat, it's the movie where they have a fist fight in a Korean restaurant. That's Hamji Park and uh, great short ribs, uh, great or pork ribs that is, and. Um, uh, there's just a lot of really great food there. And, and it's, I mean, Koreatown has a lot of great food in general. There's some, something about those two blocks where it just feels like they really have a lot going on. So, but I'm yeah. trying to angle getting some food writer to come out with me. Like, I feel like the New York Times would be smart to, to send to a food give you writer. A call. Yeah. To give me a call and I'll take them on a tour and, yeah. um, promo the book. So that's, you know, a yeah, lot of food. Let's make that happen. If you're listening, do it for sure. Sure. Yeah. I'm sure most of the food writers for the New York Times listen to this. Yeah, I'm sure. Podcast, <laughs> I assume there's a lot exactly. of Exactly. Well, Jordan, you're one of the few people I know who like immediately when we were talking about The Departed with our good friend Blake Howard, I did an episode with Blake on Irish mob movies where we covered that. We were talking about it was a remake of Infernal Affairs. And in our pandemic movie club, we were talking about remakes and that you had seen it. Not everybody has seen Infernal Affairs. So I knew that immediately, like, oh, I get to talk to you about this because we did an episode a few years ago on Chow Yun Fat and John Woo movies. And we were talking about like Hard Boiled and The Killer and Tony Long and Tony is in this. And, you know, so we got to give a shout out to Infernal Affairs in that episode. So it just seemed like a perfect fit for the 20th anniversary of Infernal Affairs and the Criterion release to bring you back for it. It's a gorgeous box set. So talk to me about this movie. You know, I'll be honest, I had heard of the movie before I saw The Departed, but I had not seen it. And the reason I had not seen it before I saw The Departed was that I think Infernal Affairs is a terrible title. Um, it's like a, it's like a hokey pun. And I don't know, because obviously that's an English language pun. Uh, do you know what the, like, Literal there is title. some kind of a Buddhist pun a little bit on what it means with the, the circle of hell and stuff like that, but it's not going to hit exactly the same way here as it does there. So it like in the essay, Justin Chang brings up, it makes some people think of the Mike Figgis movie, Internal Affairs, like, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, there's some stuff there. Yeah, so so I had avoided it. And then so unfortunately, what that means is it's very difficult. And I think this is true for most Americans who end up watching Infernal Affairs, it's very difficult to not view it through the lens of the departed and kind of compare and contrast. Uh, and, and the first thing that strikes you, uh, watching it, or at least rewatching it this time is you can see what the appeal is, uh, for a man like Scorsese, who I think, um, is a practitioner of, of just story flow as opposed to like hard cut scene after hard cut scene. He likes uh, movies that, that tumble and flow. And and this is a movie that just starts midstream and just, uh, you know, the the it feels like you're it's like, uh, you know, uh, everybody should know the plot of this. It's there's an undercover cop mm-hmm. uh, who's in, in with the mob and there's an undercover mobster who's in with the cops. Which is yeah. such a great it's a great concept for a, for a crime story. Yeah, it really is. Um, And they kind of set it up in the first I don't know, five minutes of the film when, when yeah. it's, it's younger actors. It's not, uh, Tony Lung and, um, I forgot the other actor's name, but, um, Andy Lau. Yeah. Andy Lau. Thank you. And, uh, and, um, and then they, they cut to, to, you know, current time 
uh, and they jump directly into a scene that I think the departed takes a, maybe an hour to get to. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, you are just in it. They don't stop to let you kind of absorb what the setup is. It is. No, he's a cop undercover. He's a criminal undercover. Got it. Okay. Now let's get to a very complicated scene about a deal. And there's, you know, who's signaling who and the, the absolute appeal of two people who are hunting for each other yes. while not being able to reveal who they are. I mean, you're in it before what normally would be the first act break of the film. Um, yeah. And so, you know, it's just, uh, it just tumbles, uh, forward at this kind of clip. Um, there's so much that you never really learn or see. They're just, the, the, the movie expects you to catch up and jump into it. And I, I think that's so appealing. Um, it really is. It totally respects your intelligence and it kind of demands it. Like I mm-hmm. remember the first time I actually was recommended it by a friend of mine, Ting Ting, who I went to, school with um over at Agnes Scott College briefly um she was Chinese and would always you know be raving about whatever was the latest and greatest movie that was hitting over there and this movie really revitalized the Hong Kong film industry it was kind Mm. of known as like the movie that saved it in the 21st century or tried to for a little bit it was record-breaking a huge success and so she was raving about it and then the this came out in 02, and then the two sequels both came out in 03. And so we got them eventually in quick succession. You could watch all of them. I remember seeing them and being very into it on her recommendation. And yeah, it was it was really exciting to check out. It was inspired by Face Off, which hmm. I found fascinating, but they knew uh, like yes. they couldn't actually take people's faces. So I love that they were inspired by like John Woo a mm-hmm. little bit of uh, themselves. I mean, it does kind of feel like a distant relative of, you know, hard boiled essentially or city on fire, those kind of films that you and I both love, but it also like the idea for this kind of came from face off this whole, you know, conceit of, getting into it and you know a cop and a bad guy and they trade places and you know what do you do and who's really bad and what's going on and so yeah it's it's very very cool it's you know i have a hard time separating my preference i think they tell the story differently Mm -hmm. i will watch the departed much more often than this one because Mm -hmm. this does even if you've seen it a bunch of times it really does kind of require you to watch it on a level of concentration that i think the scorsese film doesn't that's a little more just hypnotic you're into it it's very visceral and this one really does require that intellect if you think the first one is complicated we were talking off air jordan needs to catch up and see two and three i haven't seen three in quite a while but two goes like back in time further. And mm-hmm. so you get these people like, you know, 10 years earlier and all this stuff going on. Um, and you go back in time with like the the crime boss and um, the superintendent and discover just how bad the Andy Lau character is. We should probably tell people Tony Long is playing the Leo DiCaprio character mm-hmm. essentially and Andy Lau is playing Matt Damon um for his own admission uh Tony is a huge fan of Scorsese he says that's the American director he would work for in a minute and so I do love that he had kind of the more actorly 
part in this. Um, Alan Mack, who is one of the co-directors, it was directed by Andrew Lau Wai Kung and Alan Mack. Uh, Alan Mack is the co-writer. Uh, Andrew Lau, not to be confused with Andy Lau, was a cinematographer on City on Fire. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so he kind of started out like he shot Ashes of Time for Wong Kar Wai and stuff like that. And so um, it is cool that when he directed, he kind of returned to those movies and then you get a little woo. So it's a little of everything, but it's not like face off with the um, complete nonsense. This one requires the intellect. Yeah. No, it really does. And and uh, and it's very satisfying on that level that that so much gets spoon fed to you these days that yeah. it, it, it's nice to just kind of have to, to keep up. I really uh, I enjoyed the, uh, the I guess the love interest character a lot more in this than I do in The Departed. I agree. Um, yeah. And that um, the analogy or metaphor whatever you want to call it of, of the novel she is writing about the man with different personalities that is based on her boyfriend the cop and then her her revelation that she can't finish the novel because she no longer respects him when she realizes that he is a uh a criminal is pretty great and uh it and is it makes her feel a little more active i mean there's some great stuff in, in the movie and the departed but um you know i think watching yeah. this again you see how what a great gift uh the, the American team was given with this incredible structure and all these great story beats, which helps explain why I think the dialogue in the departed is so good is mm -hmm. because the, uh, the screen or the screenwriter uh, could spend so much of his time just working on that because the raw material of the story was there. there. And, and so he could just go off and play that amazing Boston dialogue jazz that, um, make i mean which i is you know makes the departed so much fun um mm -hmm. alec baldwin and um Mar <laughs> alec Martin. baldwin just making patriot act like a catchphrase is yeah. hilarious to me yes <laughs> um uh mark Wahlberg is is about as good as i think mark Wahlberg gets best performance he's given yeah yeah um that uh the the the, the repartee he has of uh who are you I'm the guy who does his job. You must be the other guy. Is mm -hmm. uh, that's a really great line. But um, not to just get drawn into the departed. I agree. I will. The departed is is one of my favorite airplane movies um, because you can just put it on and, and oh, it yeah. roll over you. Um, this um, I will say this also um, because we've talked about the, the fact before that Tony Lung is uh, is really hot. Yes, and I don't. I think know that's going to come as a shock to listeners, but he is. Yeah. Um, but I'm curious because, uh, you know, I, I'm a, a, a straight guy who's very comfortable about talking about who's hot, who isn't. But um, to me, he's not that hot in this movie. He doesn't. I don't think dirtbag. No, he's he's given kind of um, <laughs> like Justin Chang his essay for Criterion calls it bangs. You know, like they've kind mm -hmm. of obscured his famous eyebrows. And um, yeah, the bangs really do kind of, or they obscure those eyebrows. And also he's given one of those early um, aughts, late 90s kind of uh, drowned, um, you know, no BC. longer using gel, but yes. it's like the hair is too drenched onto your head kind of thing. It, it's not the greatest um, look for him. I mean, he's still very handsome. It is Tony. Yeah, but yeah. also the goatee, it's like he he looks like he always should shave just a little bit, 
even if he's going for the goatee, he's supposed to look unkempt and kind of ill at ease. And boy, does he ever. I mean, he's still extremely flirtatious and charming in some of his scenes with the therapist. They have two different love interests, which works for this movie. I mm-hmm. think that's one kind of thing in The Departed. I love Vera Farmiga, but you kind of have to suspend uh, disbelief a little bit like this one woman, the same <laughs> thing going on uh the issue of duality uh with the women kind of comes up in the second film yeah Uh, there are two marys and it's interesting to see like you have a marion uh flashback and then the mary that's going to become the novelist that he's with and so it is interesting to see it kind of extends the duality so i think the women it's still a masculine film and we're not really getting to know these ladies but no uh but they do have a little more going on in uh, but, infernal affairs, and and you're you're correct. Yeah, it's it's good that they don't do that very big stretch that they do. Yeah, yeah. Part of what a coincidence. Um, yeah. It makes it, it makes Boston <laughs> seem like a very small town. It does. Yeah. The one thing I loved though about yeah, it is a little like the first time I'm like really they're going with that because I had already seen the infernal movies. Mm-hmm. Um, but the one thing I do love about it is the two reactions to her childhood photos. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have like Matt Damon's character, the guy that she's moved in with, who's like, yeah, you know, like it's Frankenstein. He doesn't want to see that. He wants to see her hot and now and like be able to show her off. And then later you have the DiCaprio character and he's like, he goes to that picture on the wall yeah. and is charmed by it. And it's like, yep, that's the good one. Yeah. That's the good one. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, no, and, and, you know, another thing that, like, I, we might have talked about this during Hard Boiled, uh, but, you know, this is, and, and this is a later movie than Hard Boiled is, but, like, um, so much of, like, my early Hong Kong film experiences were based either on actual VHS tapes or DVDs that weren't well maintained or ripped that you start to just think, well, movies look like, vaguely look like crap when that, when yeah, they yeah. are made in Hong Kong. And, this is you. You said this earlier. It's a gorgeous transfer. Like this is a really you know Criterion does their job, yeah. And, and, and this is like a really nice, uh, gorgeous uh, set that makes you go, oh right, of course. I there's that whole generation of movies that if you think about, um, that you mostly watched, um, in in a lesser form when we were growing up in the VHS or even DVD age, yeah. And uh, to find out that no, actually, cinematography was, if anything, better, yeah, back then than it is now. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah there's none of that green overcast you and i have talked about <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. yes the prestige television uh look um but yeah you know you have kind of a marriage of the hong kong movie style of, of those movies like hard-boiled with sort of the beauty of a Wong car Wai picture which makes sense because you mm-hmm. are dealing with um andrew lau who like i said just shot ashes of time and he also co-shot this movie I guess he wanted to do that. So he like directed and then co-shot and they're all kinds of uh, wearing all kinds of hats on this film, basically. Yeah. Who uh, the the police chief in this this movie, uh, that actor. And I meant to Google this before we got on screen. What else have I seen him in? Do you know? We can look this up. But Superintendent Wong is played by Anthony Wong. Okay. He was in Hard Boiled. He was Johnny Wong and he was in Full Contact. Yeah, no, he's in yeah, hard. He's been that's, in a lot. Yeah, I, uh, you know, I not to go too far afield here, but um, I don't know exactly what the legal situation is with hard boiled. Um, yeah. but it's time to solve it. Like the fact it that is. 
that and um, the killer like let's get them over here again yeah it's time it's time to resolve whatever that is because it's absolutely ludicrous that um i don't have hard-boiled in my collection and uh i want to watch it i want to watch it right now and yes (laughs) um, we live in this time where you can feel things starting to go away and uh we cannot let hard-boiled just go away like that's that's ludicrous. Um, and so I'm glad, you know, again, I know the Criterion at one point was able to put out a hard-boiled set, um, and I wish they would be able yeah. to do it again. Um, yes, for sure. Exactly. Yeah, so we highly recommend that you check out the Infernal Affairs trilogy. I know you also are a huge fan of Pusher, that trilogy. Are there mm-hmm. any other crime movies that you think people who like this sort of epic level of storytelling or the duality of people um you know on both sides of the law are there any good crime movies from other countries that you think kind of fit the bill even if it isn't uh, a chinese film or um you well you know like and i don't know if you covered this in your irish mob movies or did i did we cover this in a totally different episode I think we did have a state of grace with Sean Penn is another movie that I would point to, you know, anytime you do uh, an undercover cop movie, uh, you're always going to deal with the same basic theme, which is the the theme of identity and and how identity is not a stable thing. Um, And, you know, sometimes people, they get into this, like, who am I? What is the real me? Uh, And I think what you really learn when you, when you think about these things is there is no real you. And the, the 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 you as a cop and you as the criminal, it's not some truth being revealed or anything like that. It's just like that identity is 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 defined a lot of by your connections to other people. And uh, State of Grace, which we did like, we did like an, a '90s neglected crime film. It might have been my first episode. I, I know we've talked about it a few times. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that to me is, um, you know, that is uh, really great. If you're just it talking is. about like the, these kind of um, uh, complicated crime films uh battles without honor humanity uh the fukusaku uh series of films which when you combine both series of them i think come up to about 10 movies okay. uh incredibly intricate uh political machinations also uh election and triad election uh are both um really kind of uh real politique crime films that that kind of demand that you pay attention to these uh power grabs and things like that that i always find really interesting and i i love that kind of uh, i love machinations i love uh yeah skullduggery any of that stuff (laughs) is is good those are all great um you know uh crime films that, that kind of deal in this level of organized crime uh that treats it i think like a business there there's a lot less of that kind of talk that kind of infects american mafia movies about like honor or respect which are all just illusions that don't you know that don't actually matter to any of those people it's just what they say while they act exactly like the people in triad election do yeah um i mean you know in, in like particularly in the any um any uh yakuza movie that you watch there's the whole idea of your sworn brother's and how you're never allowed to betray your sworn brothers, but every mm-hmm. single Yakuza movie is about somebody betraying their sworn brother. That's like yep. the first thing that happens when you get a sworn <laughs> brother is, is it's guaranteed you he you will betray him or he will betray you. So it's not really clear why they have that role because it seems yeah. it's just exists to be broken. 
It's like in a war movie when the guy is like, you know, when I get home, I'm going to marry my sweetheart. <laughs> fucking guy is going to die. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's dumb. yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, I guess there's a lot of, of, of criminal stories where they want to convince you that they have some kind of honor among thieves, but it's, uh, yeah, it, it's not real. Um, no. <laughs> there isn't any. <laughs> um, yeah, those are like, um, highlights. Yeah. Highlights. Everybody yeah. Check them and, out. And Pusher falls into the same category as Hard Boiled of, I don't know why um, there hasn't been, if not Criterion, Arrow or or somebody that needs to uh, to get those uh, available in America. Because I lost, when I moved recently, I lost like four things. And one of those four things was my Pusher DVD set that wasn't yeah. even very good. So, you know, somebody needs to to jump on that really quickly. Yeah. Hundred percent. Well, Jordan, thank you so much for being here and talking about these movies with me. I really appreciate it, and uh, happy holidays. Same to you. Thanks for having me. Anytime. Of course. Got to get those numbers up. Got to get those numbers up. Yeah. I also want to thank everyone for listening, especially my patrons who support the show and help fund my research equipment, film rentals. RSS fees, and more for as little as a dollar per month at the Film Intuition Patreon, which is the home base for the show. Other ways you can support the podcast are by sharing, reviewing, and subscribing to Watch with Jen wherever you get your podcasts, and also checking out the cool merch store hosted and created by our talented logo designer, Kate Gabrielle. You can find the merchandise store, including shirts, tote bags, stickers, and more by visiting filmintuition.com and clicking on the shop link. The show's theme music is solo acoustic guitar by Jason Shaw and is available in the free music archive. You can also reach me or interact with Watch With Jen anytime on Twitter, either at Film Intuition or our Watch With Jen account as well. Well, until next time, please take care and happy movie watching. This is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen.